Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When diplomacy fails, presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to and When Hello Diplomacy and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Welcome to, well, the penultimate remastered talk episode, guys. Thanks for joining us for all of these remastered episodes. And I hope that if you've never heard this talk episode before, then you'll give it a listen and see what you thought about Zach and Sean's, well, different look at the Boer War. It was a good time, a very good time. And actually, I remember finishing this and thinking, yeah, I'm kind of happy with that, which is always obviously a good feeling to have. These days, I get that feeling occasionally, but there you go. (laughs) That's another issue. Have a good time listening to this. Just two friends shooting the breeze over history. Enjoy it, guys. Let me know what you thought through the usual channels. And remember, back then I thought that Oitlanders was pronounced Yudlanders. I apologize. Don't kill me. Thanks and enjoy. Back on the podcast, my guest as always is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hi, guys. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> if you said I'm fine, that there's something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even if, even if you thought a response. Yeah, then. if you thought a response, that's just... 
The men yeah. in white coats will come for you. Yeah, but you will freak the person out that's sitting beside you. So you might even scare the pigeons away. So those pigeons is freaked out right now. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're um, we're doing another talk episode right after the last one because we got such rave reviews. Actually, we really yeah. did. People were very very uh, impressed. In fact, I think that was probably the best talk talk episode we've ever done. Uh, it went down very well, and we really did enjoy doing it. And it was yeah. very easy to edit it as well. Because, yeah, even uh, though it doesn't look like it from the video. <laughs> yeah. Like, the video is, is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it, went, it went very well, and uh, I suppose we better start the way we start all the other episodes that we do, uh, where we shamelessly advertise for oh, yeah, the first yeah, five like minutes. Oh, yeah, five minutes of advertising. So without any further ado... Yeah. <laughs> let's be fit. Yeah, let's be fit. Okay. So B is for blog wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie uh, E sorry. is for email where you can talk to me directly which everyone obviously wants to do How many um, emails have you got? Oh, very many uh, I've actually gotten far more uh, junk emails than uh, have, you, have you lost count? I have actually lost count Oh, there you go, folks yeah, you know? It just shows how famous I am Proper hero You can email me directly <laughs> wdfpodcast at hotmail.com F is for Facebook where you can like the Facebook page which yes. you should definitely do definitely because do it. It's doing very, very well, and every time I post up the new episode, or news, I'll always give you a, a special image that you could find easily by yourself, but why do that when you yeah, can when just it's get it from the page? Facebook. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also the option of joining the Facebook group, which you should definitely do. Oh yeah, the podcasters. Yeah, the History Podcasters, it's called, in capital letters. Search for it in the groups part of Facebook, and open your mind to a fantastic new world it's just that is growing more and more every day. So many guys there, and it's like really high quality stuff. Very high quality, very good stuff as well. Yeah. Some genuine geniuses that I won't tell you so, but really, by their work, you can tell that they are. Uh, I is for iTunes. Would Whoa, be embarrassing really for if I forgot. Oh my yeah, god! I know. Okay, that I is for bad. iTunes, where you can rate the podcast and review it and review it. Reviewing is really important. Yes, reviewing is important because it makes it shoot up the rankings, which is always very nice to see. Of but course. don't worry, Ireland, you guys have done us proud. We're still number one. Yeah, still number one in the what's hot part. Yeah, um, <laughs> and we actually do have a good few reviews in comparison, like in relation to the population. Australia, on the other hand, you guys are third in the downloads. Only one review. Very disappointing. Very sad. And we have so many elder sisters over there. Yeah, uh, we should really. It's probably your sister who. Did yeah, probably that's and, the yeah. that's the review from my sister. Hugh, <laughs> we should Hugh like some generic Australian joke now that stereotypes uh, them and turns everyone off the podcast. Uh, That'll be a smart move, I think. Oh yeah, no, what was that one on the history? You better watch the history podcasters page because yeah. they oh they they have a stern loving for the Australians and New Zealanders. Yeah. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. <laughs> they okay. love you too much. Yeah. <laughs> T is for tell a friend. Well, not even tell a friend. Tell people that aren't your friends. Um, tell people. Tell your worst enemy. Yeah. You know. And he'll consider and, it a gift to be told and, yeah. about the podcast. And you know, he'll, you'll, you'll bridge the gap. And you'll yes. You'll be friends. You will. You'll be friends. Or, you know, when you say you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy, you would wish this. Because this is, you know, just bad enough that it wouldn't be terrible. Yeah. I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, so tell anyone. Tell everyone about the podcast. Tell and your grandmother. Tell, tell, your, tell your niece. I think tell, your, <laughs> tell your uncle's yeah. dog. Do everything. Like yeah. literally fanfares. Yeah. Mm. Ticket start paper start a fan page for when diplomacy fails. Yeah. Even though there's already and one have there. a cult of Zach Twomley. Yes, have the cult of Zach Twomley. Yeah, they call him the master. They actually do. They call me the master. They actually call him the master. But that's only my first name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so having said that, then we will move on to the first part of the discussion talk episode. Jeez, we're doing a really good job not messing up. Yeah, we messed up like three times. Yeah, the other time. you know. Uh, okay, so <laughs> we will start with concentration camps because this was yeah, the part that I. This is something that he touched on, and he didn't want to stick around. In yeah, it was it was already like a fifty-three minute. Podcast, yeah, and so. I don't I don't like them going into an hour. Like I think yeah. that's when you call it a night when it's that far. And also, Chrono Minds was about to be on. And yeah, and it's it's really important. You got to get your yeah, seasons in. Exactly. I am a fan of Spencer Reed, so I have to I have to get my daily dose right there. Yeah. But uh, okay, so. Concentration, concentration camps. Ca- not invented by the Germans. Not as invented by the Germans. Popular belief. Yeah, as is popular belief. <laughs> or or people who think people who who know that the Germans didn't invent them think that the Russians invented them with the gulags. Um, but in actual fact it was the British who well, I'm not gonna say invented them. No, but you were the them fir- certainly were the first to use them on on a widespread scale. Yeah, for civilians. Like. Yeah, for civilians as well. It wasn't just like it wasn't POWs. Well, no, it wasn't POWs. Um what what when you when you think of concentration camps in the Boer War, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, uh, I don't know. Shacks. Yeah, shacks. <laughs> well, even like uh, from the sources that I've looked at okay. which have been a few books and stuff about yeah. it, there's actually can't remember the guy's name but i was thinking of including him in the actual podcast because he wrote a book just on concentration camps during the bar war but i didn't really have time to include him in the end but basically the conditions in the camps were absolutely horrendous the not surprising not surprising there's it wasn't just when you think of civilians though you often just think of men but because the british were so serious about the conflict and because they were so eager to wrap the whole thing up they didn't just escort men into the camps they sent women and children and anyone anyone at all really and the old and the sick and the too young, they were... It's not that they were worked to death, but that they just weren't given enough so to do. So they were also work camps a lot? Well, there was a few work camps, okay. but it, for the mainstay, it was just we put the people here... Were the here. work camps being used to build those bunkers, the little pill houses or whatever? The blockhouses, yeah. no, not so much. That okay. was that was more that was for... slave labor. Yeah, well, it wasn't so much slave labor as just, like, they got coloured workers to do it, but because oh, yeah. there were so many of them everywhere, it, it was easier to do it like that. And later on, they'd actually arm them, but not not so much. But in in the concentration camps that were mostly used, that you mostly see, um, it was more a case of let's get everyone that we can and put them in here so that they're not a bother to us. But instead of actually treating them with respect when they were all herded together, it was more a case of okay, they're they're out of sight and out of mind kind of thing. Yeah, which is absolutely yeah. awful when you think about it. these are actual people who have lived there their you know, their entire known lives. Yeah, like they're they're probably third generation immigrants. Yeah, and it because the Boer War is often seen it's it's the last Victorian war because during this war Queen Victoria dies. But it's seen it's often seen as a kind of a clean war for those that don't know enough about it because World War One was so awful and because the Crimea so many people died in it. Yeah, that, like of disease and everything else. But in actual fact, the Boer War is just as bad if you consider the fact that there was concentration camps. Yeah, and like probably worse because uh, this wasn't even like it was. It was absolutely discrimination, like exactly like uh, Hitler was. Except nobody remembers it. No one's like, oh no. my goodness. There isn't enough. There there's, isn't enough. There's not yeah. enough awareness because no, it has been so far away from yeah. Europe. Mm. We're, we're the Europeans seem really casual about yeah. it, and it's. It was a big deal. Like, it was it, a very big deal. And people, civilians, uh, over 20, 26,000 died, like actually died. Goodness. And that's just, that's the majority of them were women and children. The Boers who fought the British 
when they actually came back into civilian life, so many of them, their their lives have been destroyed and their families have been destroyed, that they moved back home to the Netherlands, which we'll get into a bit later on. But they moved back home to Europe. They they emigrated to the United States and everything else. That's terrible. And often they actually came, they often themselves came into positions of power. An interesting side note, a few of them who went back to the Netherlands and who went back to the United States came into political positions of power whereby they were able to then influence the politics of the state obviously not to a really uh, yeah. a, a, a large degree but enough enough to create an anti-british sentiment in those areas yeah like even the i can't remember his name but one of the um the american ambassador to britain was uh, a descendant of the boers and because of that he held an he held pr- plenty of anti-british sentiments and this meant that when it t- came time for world war Two, because this was a bit later on when it came time for world war Two, he was very anti-british himself and actually yeah. expected the downfall of the well, country. I mean, a lot of a lot of the, a lot of countries in the history as the passage of time has gone on have been ticked off by the British. So yeah. there is just a general sense in yeah. all of Britain's <laughs> colonies that <laughs> nothing against like, England. Yeah, and it's only really in sport. We, yeah, we do like you English guys. Well, it's only because like all we can, all the Irish can really win in is like in terms of sport yeah, is like rugby, rugby. And, and sometimes cricket. Yeah, if, so, if we're oh, yeah chance, cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes um, and. Uh, and probably not hockey, but no. Um, you don't play us in hurling. Like if you yeah. played us in hurling, we'd definitely beat. You. Didn't like some random African team or something beat us in hurling one time. Well, uh, maybe we just didn't send Kerry after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're getting off the topic. I want to. I want to move um, on from the subject of concentration camps. Yeah, to the Irish. Yeah, stuff. I want to move like, to the well, Irish. That was experience. a good link. There. It was. It was, it was yeah. pretty good. I suppose. Yeah. Could have been worse. Could have been better. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the uh, Irish what, what what is it that you because I like to include you in the discussions yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, you what, can just you can do this all by yourself <laughs> that uh, wouldn't make it nearly as special <laughs> I want to just ask like what what is it that you what do you know well, about the Irish they, the story? only thing I really remember was the Connacht Rangers or something like that mm. there's this painting of these guys walking like basically across the wilderness in their red coats but they're they're Irish and they've got this kid in the foreground I, I don't I don't know exactly where it is or what mm. it is um, but something to do with Connacht and yeah. it was like it really to me that picture just it, it summarised that it was the last time the Irish were really for the British like yeah. we fought them we fought with them mm. and we didn't turn around and do a rebellion at the same time yeah that's true yeah um, the Irish the Irish experience during this war it's very interesting because in the Crimea I didn't get into this before, but Victoria, Queen Victoria during the Crimean War was so impressed with the bravery of the Irish unit there that they were allowed to wear the shamrock, the Irish the Irish units wear. And this was considered a big deal because the shamrock wasn't allowed to be worn because it was a symbol of, like, Irish... Republicanism. Yeah, and it was a symbol of their nationality as well, yeah. which they were trying to yeah. cover up. They were trying but, to make us British, and yeah. they were trying to remain Irish. But during this time there during the early the early 1900s, late 1800s, there is a lot there is a big revival in Irish nationalism and it's seen very clearly through the Boer War. There was in fact two Boer commando units made exclusively of Irish Irish immigrants, Irish men who would come over during the the population boom of the gold rush and of the diamond rush yeah. but instead of fighting on the side against the Boers they fought on the side with the Boers and which is interesting because if if you look now at the, I'm confused did you mean against as in they fought for the British or against, yes or no well, I mean the majority of, of mm. people who emigrated to um to the to the Boer states during the uh 
Gold well, I'm sure Rush and Diamond just, Rush. The, the common language was just a little bit easier. And, oh yeah. You know they're they're also a little bit selfish in you know the way they they were seen as foreigners. They were seen as what what were they called? Outlanders. Yutlanders. Yutlanders. It's like yeah. it's it's a weird word. It's it, Microsoft Word doesn't even recognize it actually. <laughs> it's like U I T and then Landers after that. Okay, so you see the the Irish are probably being oppressed nearly worse mm. uh, in being there. I'd say all the nations that. Uh, were represented in immigrants there mm. were being treated more poorly yeah. than the Irish were being treated by the the British. Yeah, there was so. a lot. There was a lot of sympathy though in 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 Ireland and in, in among Irish men that's n- themselves because they sympathised with what yeah. with the with the struggle of the Boers, who, yeah. as far as the Irish were concerned, were struggling against the same imperialism that they were struggling against yes. and had been struggling against for seven hundred years and uh, yes, seven hundred years. <laughs> apparently, apparently, as time goes on, that that number gets bigger. But I'm convinced it's only because you know <laughs> time is actually passing and yeah. Uh, uh, well, we. <laughs> Um, but there was a lot of sympathy in the among Irish men with yeah. the Boer struggle, and, and I could understand. That. Yeah, like, of course, uh, nationalism was really, yeah. really taking off. Mm. Like you had, what is what's his name? John Redmond, was it? Yeah, uh, he was he was getting together the the Irish nationalists mm. and, and starting to get the nationalist movement. It was going. really, um, yeah, it was really starting up at this so, stage. Um, okay, the actual campaign of the war, I barely went into it all. Um, because as you as you may have noticed, I basically spent the entire time talking about diplomacy, which is my like forte. Yeah, he loves it. I absolutely love it, so it's pretty understandable from my point of view. But I know that a lot of you listen to the episodes not just for diplomacy, but also for wars themselves. A bit of bloody bashing. Yeah. So in in my efforts to keep it balanced in in the way I approach the episodes, I like to go into the wars campaign a bit more yeah. now. I, I actually think that the the actual episode you did there was possibly the best one you've ever done I, I found it really engaging and it it stuck to what your objective was and mm, good like I found it really clear and like enlightening so thank you good job man thank it's you really very good. much I did not pay him to say that so <laughs> <you know. laughs> um okay so the campaign of the Boer War is generally split into three phases in the first phase you have the Boers invading and holding completely the initiative I covered a few of the battles but not in any real it, detail. It was strange. They changed their, their strategy. Their mm. last strategy was to fight them when they came at them. This yes. one was like a preemptive strike. Yeah, they took the which, fight to the British mm. at the start, which did seem to work because they were very successful. Yeah. Um, which fa- that might have also insulted the British to the point of you know, yeah. retaliation. Yeah. Until mm. Well, the point I really wanted to get across yeah. in the last episode on the war is that the British knew that they had to win this, whatever the cost, and it wasn't going to be like the first Boer War where they could just let it slide and sign a peace treaty. There was the real belief that if they didn't appear strong enough in their colonial areas, that they wouldn't appear strong enough in Europe, at a t- especially at a time when Europe was quite volatile in its di- diplomatic dealings, and it really seemed important to form strong allies and yeah. appear strong in everything yeah. that you did. Yeah. It was very important for the British to actually deal either an extremely decisive blow in this case or to extinguish the Boer states altogether and obviously they wanted to extinguish the Boer states because of the nature of those Boer states and where they were now you, you were just about starting on the campaign I was so. yeah um, phase one was the Boers holding the initiative phase two was the British responding by moving in a large amount of troops and so w- this isn't done over like a like the last one you said lasted ten weeks the fighting. Yeah, it this lasted. One yeah, must have been a year because like to ship all of the troops in from all across mm. the globe 
Must have taken at least six months. The war lasted from October 1899 to March 1902, so it was a good bit longer. But if you consider what the British were doing there, basically removing two states from the map, it would, by its nature, and take longer. Removing all of the culture as well. Yeah. So taking all of those people and just stripping it back. Well, yeah. Repair. I mean, it, it's it's interesting as well to see the British mindset change once they fought the war the second time because they knew what to expect as well as just as yeah. well as just seeing that the stakes were higher because they were higher the second time. So phase two of the war is largely seen as like once the British start taking taking the initiative back from the Boers and moving more troops in themselves, that's seen as phase two. Uh, I don't I don't have the names of those battles in my head because I wasn't really focusing on the war itself. But that's being said, I do know the direction that the war went. Yeah, and I know that there was a stalemate in the year in the years once the British moved the troops in. Before they got a proper handle on the situation, it was very much containing the Boers. And until they contained them, then they were able to actually plan a proper strategy after that. Yeah. Uh, the blockhouses had a lot to do with that. Yes, they really did. Now, they can't be underestimated. I had no idea what blockhouses even were or what they had to do with it. But I don't want to go too off on a tangent here, but it's very comparable. The strategy is very comparable to what happened in Britain like in the 900s when the Vikings were invading and the British were trying to find ways to counter that invasion. So they built forts everywhere. And obviously they were bigger forts than the blockhouses, but the idea was the same. That if you have forces in every in in every conceivable kind of place that could be attacked, and you can it'll move troops quickly out of that, yes, it'll be a deterrent because the Boers were not good at besieging stuff and they were not good at attacking fortified positions. So it was a very good way to counter Did their strength. Did they use that against the Irish rebels? When are you? Like, oh, well, I suppose we didn't go all out of rebellion. We went yeah. one city rebellion, but yeah. Uh, well, the idea is the same yeah. where you had the pale where that was fortified and it was harder It was harder for the organ, disorganized Irish to attack such a well-fortified place yeah. than if the British were scattered all around the country. Yeah. Um, but back, back to the Boer situation. Yes. The, um, the idea for the blockhouses came from the first Earl of Roberts. Oh, I can't remember his name now. It was his Earl idea. Earl Roberts. Yeah. The first Earl of Roberts. Yeah. That's, it, what, yeah, yeah, that's his name. That is his name, yeah. Um, I don't know how you could become an Earl of Roberts. I, I'd love to become an Earl of Twombly. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. But um, I think that's even better than being knighted, actually. Like, being Sir Twombly. It wouldn't be good as being, like, Earl of Twombly. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. Sounds pretty British. Yeah. You I better know. watch yourself. I know. More, <laughs> more death threats than I've already gotten. <laughs> um, okay, so that second phase involved the British deciding to the decisions were made to build blockhouses and actually take the fight back to the Boers rather than just containing them. Phase three then is defined by oh, the. Could you give me a description of a blockhouse? Okay. Like, what, yeah. a, what exactly? A is blockhouse this? was basically like it would be generally a two-story kind of building built out of concrete usually either concrete or well fortified by the kind of materials that they would have had such as like probably the clay or any of the muck that they would the have used yeah well. the stone as well but it would generally be there was a picture of one of them and it wasn't a very good picture though so I didn't include it but it, it was ba- it looks like it looks like kind of like a tree house 
but made out of stone, if you know what I mean, in the way that it looks kind of makeshift, but it still it still works, it still does the job. Right. They looked kind of like someone had just picked them up and dropped them. Like, it looked like you picked it up out of a construction yard and dropped it into the wilderness. But that was the idea, that if you put loads of these things all over the place, even if there's only a handful, because there was only eight to ten soldiers in these things, but because they're so well fortified and in such a strong position, they had enough supplies as well to last them a while, so they could stay there indefinitely. Yeah. To to a certain extent, of course. Yeah. But that really changed the nature of the warfare. Okay. The blockhouse was a simple. It was a simple structure, but it did the job, and that's all that the British needed. They didn't yeah. need any brand new fangled ideas. Like obviously, this was a tactic used in putting down guerrilla warfare. Yes, it was, and it wasn't employed at all in the uh, First World War. No, well, no, not really. I mean, the the First World War is completely different in the way that it was fought because you didn't have. You didn't. I mean, there was guerrilla warfare, but certainly not to this extent. Once you get to phase three of the conflict, really, the only way that the Boers fight is by guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Whereas in World War One, it was very static and it wasn't as fast moving as it was in the Boer War. When I talked about phase two, where they started moving in soldiers, yeah. um, why, why, why weren't the men that were there already adequate? Well, there's a few there's a few reasons for that. The first off is that the British cavalry regiments that were there were nowhere near on par with the experience that the Boers had who had been unmounted, unmounted all their life pretty much um, so in order to combat that they had to bring in more experienced soldiers from around the empire and that's what stands out in the second Boer War as well the fact that the British were able to recognise the need to bring in soldiers from around how the empire how many soldiers in total do you know uh, were actually deployed for this conflict well in, in on the British side there were 600,000 wow. soldiers altogether oh yeah and like the population of Boer like the original population mm-hmm. was about 30,000 I think I remember. yeah 30,000 actual and soldiers that they could field if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, but because it was a guerrilla war, the British wanted to take absolutely no chances. Yeah. Like the, you, you might not think that it's fair that the British have 600,000 versus 30,000. And of course it's not. Yeah, but because but of the way the Boers they, are fighting. Yeah. And they do have an empire that's spells yeah. the globe. Like. And the, this was like... I mean, they had used colonial soldiers before. But this was the first time that they had recognised that soldiers around their empire are better at certain things than they are. Bringing in Australian troops, for example, who are far better on horseback than British troops would be. Just by nature, the way they live and the way they echo a living in their homeland and like, I'm sure the climate's a little bit yes it would be there. more it would be similar to what the British to, to what the South Africans would be used to so it'd be easier to acclimatise which is another factor yeah so it is important the second Boer War is important in that respect because it shows that the British are learning from their past mistakes and in that they're not treating all their subjects the same they're recognising that each subject can contribute something different and they really could yeah um, and a, another reason that they brought in more troops is because the general state of the British soldiers were very very bad was very very poor the state of the British soldiers was very very Mm. poor because like when I was reading about this I was pretty much taken back in shock because it said that 40% of the soldiers sent to fight were not of a healthy enough state to actually be fighting in the army they were a lot of them a lot of them were malnourished because they came from such poor backgrounds a lot of them were had, had absolutely no business in, in the kind of places that they were because it required more energy than they were capable of exerting. Yeah. If, if you can imagine, like, it, it seems almost ridiculous, almost as ridiculous as the Crimean War where I talked about how bad the charge of the Light Brigade was. It would be almost hilarious if it wasn't so tragic, as I said. And that, that applies here as well. The British were not treating their home subjects in the same way, that the, in, in, in the way that they should be because they weren't feeding them enough and they weren't giving them enough to sustain them and well, was it was it a problem with their pay or were these guys just conscripted like just before well, the combat yeah well and it wasn't just conscription though a lot of them volunteered because right. jobs were so hard to come by especially for right. the lower classes at this time and because the lower classes were poorer and had less to eat because they were less hardy and less suited for this kind of campaign and this kind of war which was in a very rugged terrain and it was very fast moving unless you were assigned to a blockhouse but that wasn't that wasn't necessarily what you were guaranteed to be put at. And even then you'd be moved around a good bit there. Yeah. So you needed to have energy, you needed to be strong, you needed to be prepared for the kind of combat that these guys were going into. A lot of them weren't up to it at all. Not because it's any fault of their own, just because not only were they not used to it, but their bodies were not prepared for it at all. That's why you have a lot of the Australians and a lot of the New Zealanders and even Canadians were far more hardy and far more their bodies were just yeah, fitter they were drawing the elite yeah, units from they were all the fitter. other countries they were fitter and they were stronger and they were more able for this kind of thing it, it came as a big shock to the British and to the British public that the soldiers were dying of the same diseases that they had died of 50 years before but that's because despite the small changes that the British had made in command and stuff they hadn't made the right ones in respect to their soldiers the soldiers were still suffering just as badly because yeah, they had to fight. it's not on the same scale as the Crimea war. no it's not but it, it's still considerable enough to, to warrant some kind of to warrant a kind of mention in this yeah, and like it was, an outcry from the British well, public well yeah the British well. public were absolutely like they were aghast that like for lack of a better term, that the British soldiers were able to... that the British army was recruiting these men who would absolutely... who who were so fragile as it was and were not up to the task of fighting a war 
because they were so malnourished and were so yeah it's it just seems very like um mismanagement yeah it's just seems like done. it just seems like they were they needed fodder so yeah they, they, they needed soldiers they got everybody yeah in. they needed soldiers quick to fight a war far away so they conscripted as many as possible and a lot of the volunteers they took in because they were so happy to have those volunteers they didn't really screen them as much as they should have yeah. and the requirements were often dropped for a few that especially during the times when they really really needed them like in the first few months when things were going badly for the British and yeah. they needed soldiers quickly a lot of the restrictions and requirements were either certainly lowered a lot or they were dropped altogether so that they could get as much men as possible because the focus was getting as many men as possible to counter the Boers because even if a Boer was more skilled than your soldier who was really malnourished that you were sending over if you had ten of those malnourished soldiers against one Boer you'd have far more of a better chance what if the Boer's on a horse? Well, even if the bower's on a horse... <laughs> yeah, if ten bow- rifle shots. Yeah, ten rifle shots. You have ten chances there. That's a very specific example, obviously. But it just yeah. goes to show, like, this is the kind of mindset that the British the British High Command was in. Um, I, uh, the knock-on political effects in Britain should be understated as well. In the year 1900, because the war seemed to be going better then, and the war was still popular at home, the British public were happy with the Conservative government and it, it, it enjoyed a very high level of popularity and yeah. roaringly successful at that stage. As the war progressed badly and as the British saw the truths of the conflict, such as the concentration camps yeah. and the state of the British soldiers, another factor as well, I'll get into a bit afterwards, um, is that the newspapers were sending reports home in and the Boer were, areas. They were being brutally honest. They were, they were being back. brutally honest because there was free press in Britain and they were saying the truth. And I know that I said that this was important in the Crimea, but... An interesting thing to think of now, there was a higher literacy level in Britain and everywhere in Europe now than there was 50 years before. So even though the Crimea was the first to see it in a massive scale, the Boer Wars was the first to see it on such a scale that it had more of an impact because more people people were able to read it and more people were able to find out what was going on. And then as that happened, more people demanded to know what was going on. They felt it was their right to know what was happening. And that's when the media became, you know, rulers of Britain. Yeah, they became their own power in some respects. And the British... The British government knew they had to appease the media just as much as the public so that the media would say what they wanted them to say so yeah. that the public would hear this and be influenced. I mean, that's that's been done for centuries before and after. Um, but it shouldn't be understated that because of that, the British the British Conservative Party then, once they, once they suffered such desperate straits in popularity and all the other things that I mentioned, after that they suffered a terrible defeat in the, in the 1906 election. Okay. This basically annihilated them from effective... Opposition so for a good few years. Are still around, yeah. Okay, just no, for a the, few years. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't were, mean were they the disappeared. Um, on, were they in power during the First World War? Or? The during the First World War, they had a coalition government of all the parties, okay. so as to not, so that there wouldn't be kind of opposition to kind of unite the country for oh, the common cause, kind of, of thing. Course, yeah. um, but certainly, the Conservatives suffered badly in the, in the years leading up to the war, and there's often speculation because what if one government did this or one government did that? The opposition that was in power then, instead of the Conservatives, took a different line to Germany than maybe the Conservatives would have. Yeah, and The certainly, Conservatives might have maintained that relationship. Yeah, and it, with respect to Ireland as well, an issue closer to our hearts, if yeah. the Liberal government that took over from the Conservatives wasn't there, or if they had taken a harder line against Ireland, would would the would the rebellion have broken out as it did, or would it have, would it have been suppressed at all, or would it have been considered as a sign that Britain needed to change its policy towards Ireland. I mean, who's to say that it would be or wouldn't be? 
based on who was in power at the time. But once World War One broke out, it was irrelevant anyway, because all the parties were in power at yeah. that stage in a grand coalition. Do you know the way the, the Boer, right? Yes. The Boer is like these Dutch immigrants from like third generation. Yeah. Um, why didn't the Netherlands step in? Why was it Germany and France that were playing yeah. you know, mm. uh, Big Daddy for, for the Boer states? That is a good question. I would have liked to have focused more on the Netherlands if I had had time. I'm going to do that now, obviously. But um, the reason why I focused more on Germany and France was because of the circumstances of the time. The Netherlands wasn't really an entity in Europe at this time, and it wouldn't okay. be in, it wouldn't be in World War One either because it would be neutral. And okay. unlike in World War Two, Germany respected its neutrality, okay. so it didn't really get considered into the into the political equation. But the attitude of the Netherlands during this time, Queen, Queen Wilhelmina, 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 is that how you say it? Oh, all right, <laughs> <laughs> learning something new every day. Um, the reason <laughs> the the approach taken by her and her government was completely to ignore the South African blockade that the British were doing at this stage. They didn't. They the the Netherlands saw what the British were doing to the Boers, but because like obviously Britain is a lot more powerful than the Netherlands, they can't exactly declare war or anything like that. But there was a lot of sympathy not just in the Netherlands but in all of Europe for what the Boers were doing and for their struggle against British imperialism. And yeah. it was seen as imperialism. It wasn't seen... The war against the Boers was not seen as a good thing in many parts of Europe. Yeah. It was seen as a bad thing. And the support was definitely there more so for the Boers than for okay. the um, That's British. That's really interesting. Yeah, and there there is a few reasons for that, because it, it's a really racist time. I mean, because it was white against white and not white against black, if you had had... If the Boers had been black, say there would have been a very different opinion yeah. because it would have been seen as the white man's burden and, oh, the British have every right to, to beat down the Boers. What are the Boers doing? Get rid of them kind of thing. But because yeah. the Boers were white and they'd been there for some time, it was considered and their they land. Were of European they were of European ancestry, yeah. And that that really does come into it. I mean, because the Boers had been there as well and they'd been seen as the kind of liberators of that area, they were taking over and they were bringing civilization to that area and now the British were coming in and trying to kick the Boers out. And the the Europeans were saying, "Oh, what are you doing?" The Boers brought civilization to the area. That to that area, yeah. they were doing the right thing already. What are you coming in for yeah, and, and, I, and kicking them I out? I think possibly the worst thing that could have happened for the uh, the the free states there, yeah. the Boer states, was was finding natural resources. Yeah, definitely. That, that possibly was yeah. the worst possible mm. scenario for them because they. The British could have just left them. They weren't becoming like big. They weren't. No. They weren't attracting massive immigrants. No, they, not at all. They were just, you know, Britain would have been content just to have left them. Mm. But then, the discovery of precious minerals. Yeah. In both that, that yeah. province. That put the nail it, in the coffin. Absolutely. It just that was it. Britain yeah. had to take it, mm. or it would look weak. And yeah. it, I don't know. It's just a very strange mindset. In my yeah, mind. it is. I mean, it's that's something so positive, like the discovery of gold, could be such a bad, bad thing. For uh, for all yeah. parties involved, really, I mean, Britain won, but it le- it had to learn a lot of harsh lessons from this war, as yeah. it would from all the Surely, at the wars. time, wasn't wasn't it the the gold mines were being exhausted? Yeah, well, by the time the Boer War came about, the gold mines were certainly suffering because the gold seemed to be drying up. Actually, it was only after the Boer states were absorbed that more effective ways of harvesting the gold oh, okay. were were yeah. were found, and then. The, the production of gold and the, the extraction of it started to pick up a bit. But that's not to say that it was a good thing that it got taken over. I mean, certainly, if you ask any borough, would they rather be independent states or have more effective ways to harvest the gold? They would they would have chosen the former. Yeah. So, 
Now, the the Boers' actual attitude to more immigrants was absolutely preposterous. Yeah. I think, like, you're of European descent. You embrace Europeans that mm. come. You, you join them to your culture so mm. that there's a, a definite form of nationality to the yeah. like if you go to the Boer you become a Boer mm. it's not instead they they said you come to the Boer you become an Utlander mm. and that's it you stay an Utlander yeah. no matter how long you stay here yeah. like you be a descendant of an Utlander mm. and I think that sort of racism yeah. uh, towards towards, towards yeah. basically their cousins yeah. <laughs> uh, was really it was their own downfall yeah it and, was their own and downfall yeah. they could have easily have unified mm. these people coming in to yeah. their cause and and like and even the corporations the mining corporations mm. had they, they could have brought them under so that they weren't looking to the British to help them out. Yeah. They could have been like, okay, we'll let you off with your taxes yeah. because, you know, we need you guys here mm. to keep the jobs going, to keep the taxes coming yeah. in. Of course. Like, well, because the Boers, you see, the Boers were very, they had a very strong sense of nationalism. They had a very small-minded sense of, like, they, they did, didn't yeah, have well, a big true, picture yeah. at all. No, they, no. Had they seen what they could have done like yeah. what would have happened had they realized they would have become a nation of what nine ninety thousand yeah. people and they would have been unified and strong and, and the British wouldn't have been able to march in there. Yeah, but you see, the fear was that those new people that had come in brought with them ideas about the Boer states that were different to what the Boers had there already had. Okay. Like the ideas that, oh, why can't we all just get along might seem like reasonable to us, but because let's all get along involved for the yeah. large part they involved unifying because the people who were coming from Europe didn't understand that the Boers wanted to stay independent because they couldn't see the difference between the Boer states or from the Cape Colony. I mean, they're both white countries. They're both they're both Col- inhabited yeah. by white men and, and they use yeah. African labour and yeah. their ans- European ancestry. So what's the big deal? But the, the very... The mindset of the Boers... It's hard to pinpoint exactly, but it really does come down to us versus them in the Boer mindset. Because right. they, they viewed themselves as different and they viewed themselves as pioneers because they were the first ones there. Yeah. And who who has the right to come here and tell us what we can and can't do? Who has the right to come here and change our but policy? Like, illegalize... What was it? The Utlanders. Like, Utlanders probably wouldn't have come up with their own party had yeah. they had they been allowed to choose between the parties that mm. were already there. And, yeah. and, like, it just seems like, yeah. from the start, the, the Boers were trying to... To yeah. isolate well, they and were, yeah. alienate mm. the, the the immigrants that were coming in, they were, and that, sh- yeah. that that gave Britain the excuse to mm. come in as again the noble hand and liberate these yeah. people. Well, they were shooting themselves in the foot, and really they should have had, they should have planned it better because they would have known that, like experience had shown throughout the world that once you discover gold, people are going to move in and try and exploit that gold, whether you want them to or not. They're going to settle down, and that's going to change the demographics of the population. Mm. They should have prepared for that, and they should have learned from. They should have learned from examples elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Now, now who's to say? This is all speculation. Yeah. Had had they won? Yeah. Like, what would have happened? Would the British have continued to pile soldiers in? And had it been procrastinated all the way out to 1914, mm-hmm. would Britain have even been ready for an, another war? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, if, if the Jutlanders and the Boers had been able to settle their differences properly and had been able to join forces together, I mean... I myself. But the first Boer War wouldn't have happened. Like the mm. the they wouldn't have gone in trying to start a rebellion. Yeah. And uh, the the British would have come in in force the first time. Yeah. I mean, well, that is true. 
But don't forget, gold was only discovered in 1886. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that was the big deal. I mean, diamonds was pretty big in, in 1867, but gold was the real thing. Gold drove Europeans crazy because the sight of gold, like, suggested so many things, like the dream of wealth and the dream of starting afresh somewhere else. It really can't be underestimated. And it just yeah. goes to show how much people believe in that because in the space of only a few years, 60,000 people came over from all over Europe and the United States which was only starting up itself really around this time to start a new life. I mean, it's fascinating really to think that so many people would uproot themselves to try and start again at the promise of gold, but that's what so many of them did. Mm. And because their their way of life was in many ways different, don't forget a lot of the Boers, they had a different mindset spiritually as well, because a lot of them were, a lot of them were, Puritans or they would have been Quakers or they would have been trying to start right. a new with their own ideas that they had I mean you might think why would you move all the way to South Africa and start a colony if you are not being given the respect you want at home you might think well there's better stuff out for me out there right. and once you get out there if people out there share your own ideas suddenly your your ideas you're in paradise yeah so. you're in paradise then and not only that but if you can find people that agree with you in this new area um, then suddenly, you're, you're although you were the minority in your old country, now you're the monopoly in your new country. And you don't want to give that up if people from your old country then come to your new country and say, <laughs> oh, we want to have our rights and everything. Of course, you're not going to let them do that. Yeah. Because that means that you'll have to go back to the old ways. Yeah. If any of that makes sense. <laughs> no, it, was, it, was, it made sense. It's just like, if you, if you have lost his meaning go back about 30 seconds because yeah. <laughs> that's where he actually starts the point yeah, yeah. I, I realise sometimes because I just made that <laughs> I made that I'm flying by the seat of my pants in during all these episodes so that's a good expression it, I, it's one of my favourite expressions and I really <laughs> do I really do uh, live by it especially in these episodes but it, I think it, often it's the best way to it's the best way to be yeah. because and uh, if it's too long Zach will just cut it back so, exactly yeah. I, I make myself look very smart in these episodes he gets rid of all the so he checks it afterwards to yeah. see if it's actually true yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay, what else? Um, to talk I about? suppose the uh, Berlin Conference. Oh yeah. no, Paul! Paul! Oh, Paul! Let's we'll oh. talk about Paul. I want to talk a bit about Paul Kruger. Yeah. Um, you can't really underestimate the impact he had. I said he was basically the permanent president of the Transvaal or the South African Republic during this time, and that was is... he a dictator? Because it would it would seem by the yeah. policies he adopted, mm. it was very much like a dictator. Yeah, you see, I'm going to be honest. I don't know the na- I don't know the exact nature of Transvaal politics, but because it was a republic, they had a president, and that president was Paul Kruger for a very long period of time. You mean but, like the way North Korea had a president? Well, no, not so much that. Like it wasn't nearly along that kind of a level. Don't forget, he was very popular as well. Okay, okay. Because he was always doing stuff. He was always doing stuff to support the independence of his country. Yeah. Um. He secured many. Deep and he'd been very, very visible during the first Boer War as well, where he'd been part of the Boer delegation to sign the peace treaty. Yeah. Um. So he was fiercely independent, and he was very, he was deeply religious, and he was basically a stereotype of a Boer, of a Boer settler because he he had all those things that were expected of the Boers, like they're they were God fearing men, they were very hard working, they were very ruralized. And they were very... Their horses were very important to them. Like, that's basically what he was. That was him in a nutshell. So he was very suited to the position of president and for representing the country as long as he did. He's a very important figure, obviously. I mean, you could say he started the the Second Boer War, but really, I mean, if he hadn't started it, someone else would have started it. It was only only a matter of time. And he he managed to actually get out of the, uh, the... 
trans man. he did yeah after the war he was it's kind of sad really after the war he was so upset his wife died during the war um, and while after she had died he realised there was nothing in the Boer states I, for him anymore I thought uh, I thought it was uh, the 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 Dutch ship uh, it's a Dutch warship that just ignored the British blockade uh, picked him up but his wife was too sick to travel with him yeah his wife was too so sick she was she, she actually stayed she, she stayed in the Boer states unwell. yeah while he was going over to um to sign the peace treaty is what it was yeah um, yeah while he was going over his wife stayed behind and of course she died because she was so unwell I'm not sure what she died of but she died sometime in 1901 and uh, the year after then Paul Kruger was very much depressed and upset about the situation and of course the fact that he lost his wife yeah. so he, he, he decided to stay in the Netherlands instead of going back to South Africa yeah. and of course this isn't a good thing for the Boer States because they very much appreciated his contribution even, course, though, even though it wasn't successful they had a strong leader in Paul Kruger um, but no, he he stayed in the Netherlands. He died nineteen oh six, I think it was. Yeah, at least he didn't see the first war. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, there's one last thing I want to get into. I mean, I did talk about it a good bit in the actual episode. I spent a long time on it, but the Berlin Conference, just because I kind of want to end on this, because it's a good note of what's to come yeah, in Europe. Yeah. The fact that Bismarck took it upon himself to organize this is quite impressive. It came down to the Belgian king as well, Leopold II. And this was very much uh, this all centered around the Congo, which if you look at that ep- if you look at that image I posted on Facebook, it shows that the Belgians owned that, and a lot of things because Congo is in the center of Africa, a lot of things flowed through there. The Belgian king wanted free trade there. A few of the others didn't want free trade there, so there was a bit of there was a bit of tension going on to solve this tension, and because Italy was getting upset, um, Bismarck decided that he was going to organize all these countries into a conference where everyone yeah. would have a say and everyone would have to respect the decisions of that conference. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, United Nations of the Americas. It is, yeah. Make, oh, no, uh, what was it? The League of Nations. League of Nations, League yeah. Of Nations it it, it is, yeah. To Except, you can just see, you know, mm. smart people like Bismarck, mm. you know, they've got this way before yeah. way before it. Oh, yeah, I mean... Tuition. It, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's for more selfish reasons. It's almost unbelievable to think that the nations of Europe carve up the African continent in its entirety, apart from Ethiopia. But that's exactly what they did. And the the conference was important because it it basically gave the formula for how delegations about matters concerning Africa and then later concerning Europe would yes. be dealt with. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Because later on you'll see crises in, say, Morocco is pretty pretty big ones, um, and Algeria, where the French and the British are arguing. The French and the British and the Germans are arguing about who owns what. But this conference here, pretty much the blueprint of what's to come. Yeah. Um, that, that was a really good talk episode. I really enjoyed that. Um, remember, guys... Be fit. Yes, so, be fit. Uh, and especially the Facebook page, because we'll, we'll have the bants on there. We will. Um, they're not a form of drugs. They <laughs> are just the lols, which are also not a form of drugs. It's, it's just, just the, the cocks. Oh, yeah, the crack, which the crack. Is, that which sounds is, even more like a drug. Which is not a form of drugs. <laughs> it's just, you know, the fun. There you go. We're having the fun. We're having the fun. Okay. Uh, yeah. And that being said, we shall take our leave. I'm Zach. I'm Sean. And you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. Thanks. Thanks.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.